This is the Aurelius Podcast, episode 44, with Susan and Guthrie Weinshank. I'm Zach Naylor, co-founder at Aurelius and your host for the Aurelius Podcast, where we discuss all things UX, research, and product. We're back for a new season of the podcast, and this time we have Susan and Guthrie Weinshank. Together, they make up Team W, behavioral scientists that do work in the UX and design world. They joined us to talk about what UX designers and researchers should know about psychology and behavioral economics and how to apply it in their work. This conversation naturally drifted into a discussion about the ethics and moral implications of applying known influence techniques and behavior triggers into design and marketing. There were some really great points brought up for us to all consider as we think about how we choose to apply this or not in the work that we do. The Aurelius podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the powerful research repository and insights platform. Aurelius is an all-in-one space for researchers to organize notes, capture insights, analyze data, and share outcomes with your team. We recently announced two of our biggest new features yet. Aurelius now offers transcriptions and our automatic report builder. You can add any audio or video recording and have notes created for you automatically. Then, Aurelius automatically creates a report with every key insight and recommendation from your project, which you can then edit, design, and share with anyone right from Aurelius. Check us out at AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. Okay, let's get to it. Hey, Susan. Hey, Guthrie. Hello. How are you? Good. Doing great. We're good. We got a sunny day today. That's nice. You know, we have sunny day here i'm in minneapolis but that usually means when it's very sunny and very clear it's also very cold and that's true well you know we're not far from you right you're uh chicago area is that right well guthrie's lives in chicago but right at this moment he's up here with me in wisconsin we are about a three-hour drive due east of you if you're yeah. in Minneapolis. Yeah, yeah i am in minneapolis that's so i'm cool. waving to you out the window okay well then i'll wave this way okay <laughs> work. well very good i appreciate you both jumping on and taking the time to chat with us i know that folks are going to be excited to hear what you what you all have to say and i'm personally selfishly excited to have a conversation with you both but before we get started typically what i'll mention to our guests is just you know in the event somebody doesn't actually know who you are already maybe you know introduce yourself talk a little bit more about the work you do some things you've done what you're passionate about to give them an idea who we're chatting with today sure Guthrie, you want me to go first go for it all right so i'm susan weinchank and Guthrie and i have a company called the team w we do consulting and teaching and speaking especially in the interaction between user experience and behavioral design. So I have a PhD in psychology, and I'm going to let Guthrie talk about his degrees and his specialty. I know all about how the brain works and why people do the crazy and weird things they do. I've got a long career in applying psychology to design, and that's kind of where all the user experience stuff comes in. But we we love this intersection between behavioral science and design. And Guthrie, why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, your background, your degrees, and your specialty in that behavioral science area? Sure. My name is Guthrie. I went to the University of Wisconsin, where I got a degree in economics, and then at University of Loyola in Chicago for my law degree. He's a lawyer. Yes, licensed attorney in the state of Illinois. Watch out what you say. Um, So, just just kind of given that uh, that background, I sort of my intersection really is that behavioral economics side. So 
if you have a specific person with their specific preferences in a specific situation, what can we predict about what their behavior is going to be or look like? So we we really like that combination because I'm kind of like the psychology brain science, you know, what do all humans have in common? Mm-hmm. And he's the human behavior, predictable human behavior in particular contexts and situations yeah. mm-hmm. side. So we combine those together. This is really a fascinating way of describing that too. I mean, being uh, being aware of your work, but not having heard it described in that way and that combination is really fascinating. And so I think, you know, as people hear you describe that, I would certainly imagine the connections between behavioral economics and psychology applied to design are obvious. But I have to ask, how did you get into this? What made you say, yeah, I'm, you know, a trained psychologist or, or a trained behavioral uh, economist or, 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 you know, or very well versed in this area. And I'm going to apply that to this. Well, you go first and then I'll. And then then I'll you'll go. add on. Yeah. Okay. Well, for me, it happened a really long time ago and I was in graduate school and working on my PhD and really interested in cognitive psychology, how people think, how people learn, and hadn't thought at all about applying that to technology or computers or software or anything. And I was going, I was getting my PhD at Penn State and Penn State has a language requirement for grad students, but they have a weird twist because you can take a foreign language or you could take a computer language which now that I think back on it makes no sense at all, but that's what it was. It's got language in the words. And I uh, I was kind of, I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm tired of French or German or whatever. I think I'll try this computer language thing. I had never programmed at all. And so I, you know, I started taking this programming class. What happened actually was I, I ran my first program which was some silly thing, you know, in which it would take one column of numbers and another column of numbers and do some calculation and give you an answer. And when I got, when I ran my first program, the answer came back and all it said was job aborted. And I was like, you know, and then I had to figure out what I had done wrong. But, but I remember I had this moment where I was like, job aborted. What the heck does that mean? And what, how is anyone supposed to understand what that means? And how is anyone supposed to know what to do next? And so I remember that specific moment because I said, this isn't going to work. This is not the way for technology to communicate with people. Now, I want to tell you, this was so long ago. It was before the idea of user experience. It was before the the word usability was ever used. I mean, we're talking a really long time ago. Sure. Now, I I didn't know at the time that the field did exist to apply what we know about people to technology design, it was called back then, well, when I started, it was called man-machine interaction. <laughs> then it was called human-computer interaction. So I didn't know at the moment that this was a thing. I said, well, we should apply what we know about people to design technology so that it'll be easier to use. And then I found out, oh, yeah, this is a thing. People earn a living at this. And I became intrigued. So throughout the rest of my PhD program, I I started thinking about how to combine the two. And when I got out, I that's the, the field I went into. So that's kind of how I started in it. And I've been doing it, like I said, for a really long time. Now, Guthrie, what do you want to add about your story in this? Yeah. So I'll just I'll just add a little coda to that. So fast forward a lot of years. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Guthrie. You sort of got into more of the nuts and bolts of UX, of just like the UX field. Yeah, yeah. And moved 
I would say probably away from the actual uh, psychology of it. Somewhat. I mean, the UX always involves some psychology, but yeah. And then starting, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago, you sort of had an opportunity to go back out on your own. And as you did, the topics that you chose to pursue and specialize in and talk about, uh, you started to more and more and more and more focus back back to your roots, back back to to the psychology, back to the research. The rest of the field kind of moved towards you in a way. So I, I think maybe 10 years ago, you couldn't do this podcast. This wasn't something, you know, we, you would go to conferences and you'd mention, you know, Kahneman and no one would know who you're talking about. And now it's become so popular that it's pretty easy for you to talk about these kind of these kind of things. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of really focusing on psychology and behavioral science and unconscious mental processing and the latest research on brain science and decision making and that you know, applying that to design. When I started, as Guthrie said, it's really true. For many years, I I got more into what we call traditional UX work, which of course involves psychology. But then about 12 years ago, I would say, I really actually read a series of books that got me very excited about the latest research in brain science and decision-making. And I started thinking anew about how that applied to what we did in design. But As Guthrie said, initially, when I started talking about this, you know, I was like the weirdo at the (laughs) conferences. And now everybody's right. I mean, there's a, you know, you could, you say UX psychology or, you know, behavioral science and UX. And, you know, a lot of people at least have heard of it, if not, you know, have heard many speakers on it. So yeah, I think there was this, this kind of coming together of the two fields. But you didn't say about no, you. Go no, ahead. I, I interrupted you. My, my story will be a lot shorter. After law school, I started, I started working with the Team W, but I was, um, at the time, my specialty was more in operations. So I had previously done like procurement, supply chain management, economics-y, sort of business-y stuff. And then in, in law school, you know, I'd taken tax law, you know, corporate law. So you know, running the contracts and setting up the tax structures and various stuff like that. Kind of move forward, I started to venture a little bit more into the content space here and there because people would ask like economics-y questions Mm -hmm. that you maybe didn't know. And I I happen to know a little bit about something. And over the years, I slowly crept more and more and more into the content space and it's become more and more popular. So I kind of feel like now I'm, um, I think maybe behavioral economics is sort of where that behavioral psychology was a bunch of years ago. People are starting to hear about it. It's a, it's, it's still a, a little less known. Yeah. If I say the word, some people maybe have an idea of what I'm talking about, which I don't think was true a bunch of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've definitely moved more and more and more into the content expert, a little less behind the scenes. That's sort of how I, I sort of slid into it. And it seems to, seems to be working. Okay. Right on. There's, so many things that I want to ask yeah. about both of your backgrounds there. I feel like one of the things I need to ask is what's the most popular question you get? Because I can imagine that, right, that there's, because like I said, that there's a lot that I would personally like to ask you, but what do you feel like is the thing everybody wants to ask you? We know, we both know what we that's going to be. Um, now, one thing I should say is that it do, it is a little audience dependent. You know, our most popular keynote talk slash workshop, what's, what's the name of it? Behavioral design. Oh, we've changed it a bunch of times. It used to be more complicated than that. Yeah, that's that's a much better name. 
you know, when we give that behavioral design workshop, you know, we're talking to sort of a mix of, there's some, you know, graphic designers and some UX researchers and maybe some marketing people. And yeah. it, it is sort of a mix. And so I definitely have an answer for that because it is, you know, the most common topic. There are maybe some other talks that we give that are to other audiences where it might be a little different. Like if we're only in front of a bunch of developers or only in front of a bunch of marketing people, for some reason, the marketing people tend to ask different questions. But the answer to your question is in the last at least two years, the most popular question has been the ethics question. It's uh, all about, oh, what do we do about, you know, dark, dark design? And if, uh, you're, if you're designing something so that you're encouraging people to take action, mm-hmm. right? How, yeah, how do we know if that's ethical or not ethical? Yeah, that is the most common question we get. Totally. So this whole idea of like good hacker, bad hacker thing. Yeah. Dark pattern design, anti-pattern, I think I've heard it referred to, right? So there's all these different things. And so I can imagine that that's exactly what people bring you two on to talk about is how, well, how do we design to influence behavior, which in and of itself is a, a little bit of a, a quagmire, right? To, to even be pursuing. And so then to, how, how do you make sure you're sort of on the right side of that? Yeah. So then now I have to ask you, What's your answer to that question? <laughs> How do you make sure that you are on the right side of that when you're okay. not? Okay. Well, not I, I'm going to let powers, uh, for I, for purposes of evil. Yeah, I'm going to let Guthrie start with this because he's the one that has spent the most time really figuring out an answer to this. Yeah. So I, I think I am sort of uniquely qualified to answer this question, both because of my behavioral science background, but also my legal background. The law is a profession that really requires a high standard of excellence, sorry, of ethics. And according to the separate test you take that's different than the bar called the MPRE, and it's only a test on ethics. And I passed. So the state of Illinois says I am an ethical person. <laughs> it's like an official. That's the, the so. And there are like there's some like weird perks that I have never done that apparently like for some things like I don't need a notary because like, really? yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Yep. Because you're an ethical person, you uh, don't like, need a notary. Like if I wanted to become a real estate attorney, like I don't have to take any of the ethical real estate stuff because oh, I'm funny. already like through. There's stuff like that. I, I don't quote me on that. I just remember hearing hearing other. But that is not the answer to how to make sure. No, your no, ethical it's not. is to is to get a law degree and pass the MPR. No, no, that, seems, not, that not seems a little all. rigorous. Yeah, uh, not at all. It wasn't it wasn't that hard, which is maybe should be worse. The point is that I've you know I've given a bit of thought to this in a bunch of different ways. The first question is how do you decide if something is ethical or not ethical? So I you know I came up with a formula you can run and you can determine if a product or service you have is ethical or not. But as an economist, I do you know my sort of thing is look, I'm not a politician. You know I have my own personal views on what's ethical or not. But the whole point of economics is that. Well, we're just running the numbers. Like whether you decide how, you know, it's like how ethical do you want, do you as an organization want to be? And of course you can say, well, societies might say you're ethical or not ethical. And again, you can, I, you know, I can talk for a bit longer about how you run that calculation. But basically, you know, you, you can run a very simple calculation and determine if your product or service is ethical or not. It's sort of like on a sliding scale. The example I like to use is, there's a very simple behavioral science trick that's not very ethical, that definitely goes deep to the brainstem and influences people to change their behavior. It's called using attractive 
people in sexual poses to sell stuff. People have been using good-looking people to peddle products for, for like, forever. I mean, it's forever. like the oldest marketing trick in the book. I don't know. People, society sort of has decided that that's ethical. That's like, okay, if you want to use an attractive person eating food or drinking beer, doing, doing whatever they're doing, you know, selling insurance, that's okay for whatever reason. You know, you could really get very, you know, deep and wax, you know, philosophical about, you know, ethics. There does seem to be a line somewhere and uh, where that exact line is and how far you as an organization are willing to go. There's a little bit of debate there. I would say just in general, my personal opinion, most companies or organizations are really not acting very ethically and usually put money first. That's uh, if you have a specific ethics question, I can go into it. That is a very poorly done high level. <laughs> It's way too long. So, okay, fair enough. Is it the same question for you, Susan? You mean, how do you determine whether your particular technique that you're thinking about applying in order to get someone to take action is ethical or not? Or, or is that, or do you mean that, that the most common question? That... Yeah, is that the same question that you get as well? So is it, is oh. it this big combo for you both that you, you often get this same question? I really think it is. Mm -hmm. I really think it is. And, it, and the reason is that, you know, for instance, in a typical... In a typical 40-minute plus Q&A keynote that we give, we're talking about, we call it the top five things, but, you know, really each one has multiple things in it. So we're talking about 10, for instance, really specific, powerful things you can do to get people to take action. In our one or two-day workshop, we're talking about dozens of things, right? So it's so obvious that we are talking about the way the human brain works and the way people typically react, there's no way that anyone listening to that can't at some point say, is this okay? And does it depend on what the action is you want them to take? Sure. And so it's, it's pretty obvious that this, it's an important question. And yeah, so I would say it's the most common question we get. Now, interestingly, it didn't used to be. Yeah. Well, it did not used to be. Yeah, this I used to be able to give a keynote talk or a two-day workshop and talk about this stuff. It wouldn't come up at all. I mean, people might have been thinking about it. Maybe some people were thinking about it, but either people weren't comfortable asking or it didn't seem that important to ask. And something shifted in the last, I would say, year or two, especially. Mm -hmm. That now it always any Q and A we do that question is going to be there. Mm, so you're prepared for this, and uh, it's interesting that that shift occurred. I think even from a behavioral economics standpoint, we've seen a change in behavior as a society, in which I think you can you know even put if you put your finger in the pulse of that through social media and things like that, that this has been discussed more often. So it makes sense that that would come up. Yeah. I also like the idea of explicitly calling out that being ethical in and of itself is a choice. <laughs> and so the fact that it is a sliding scale is kind of like, it's kind of like throwing darts at a dartboard. You know, where are you aiming, really? <laughs> I guess is the question. Um, and I think that that could be a topic in and of itself. But as you both were describing this, one of the things I thought of is, personally to ask is, could you give me an example maybe of one of the things you suggest what you would consider an ethical application and perhaps an unethical application? So I'm, I'm going to do this more succinctly and less all over the place than I did before. Okay. So when you're talking about a product or service, and the question is, is it ethical or not? There are two factors that you need to look at. 
So if we think of our bell curve distribution of all the users of this product, you're going to have the vast majority of users who are right in the middle. And the question is, how much is this product or service harming their lives sort of in a normal way? Okay. An example of, and, uh, of this would be maybe like meth. Like almost <laughs> all the users of meth, just their lives are sort of negatively impacted in not a very good way. Okay. Right. And then, but it's also important to look at, you know, the last little, you know, two and a half percent on the ends, right? The, the little you know, standard deviation right on the, the tips. Those are the extremes, people in the extreme case. So in our meth example, people on the extreme end of the meth use also bad. So it's the combination of those two factors. You have to pass both of those tests if you're going to become ethical. So for example, let's look at a, at a mobile game. And for the vast, vast majority of users, you have, you know, maybe they, there's some microtransactions. They pay a little bit. They mostly just have fun with their friends. It's a good way to waste time. And yeah, maybe they're out a couple bucks because they wanted, you know, a character skin or something. It's no big deal. Okay, so that's that's fine. But for the people on the extremes, and I don't know if you, there's, there's some interesting anecdotes about these companies. It's like, you know, 2% of the users, or it's like 98% of the revenue or something mm -hmm. crazy. They get very addicted. They're doing it hours and hours and hours and hours and hours a day. And it's really having a negative impact on their life. So I would say that if the majority of either the majority of users or the majority of people in the extremes are having pretty significant um, negative life consequences. It's not making their life better. That's probably unethical, especially if you are making money at the expense of their suffering. So if you would like to, in my eyes, sort of regain your ethical standing, what it's, it's, not, it's really not that hard to do. If you're running this kind of app, you know what users are basically being addicted to it. You could just look, you know, any user that's using it over a certain, you know, 10, 10 hours a day, six hours a day, four hours a day, whatever it is, or spending, you know, a certain amount of money, you can put in code that, for example, it says, hey, you've used this for four hours today. We're locking you out of the app. You mm -hmm. can't log in for 24 hours. Mm -hmm. You know, we are, we're purposely stopping you from becoming as addicted to this game as maybe you otherwise would have been. And you can, you know, and you just you keep fleshing that out with all sorts of different things. That is, to me, how you can have a product and service be ethical. You have to balance both the majority of the users and the people at the extremes. That's, yeah, so that's a really, really useful perspective, I think, for people to take in considering whether or not their products are ethical. Interestingly, a question that came up immediately as you even use that example is, that I think that in and of itself is an ethics decision, right? It just in terms of, say, personal freedom, right? I can imagine, or at least I would hope that somebody says, should we be making a decision on someone else's behalf on whether or not to use this? And then like, what, what sort of implications are there in making that kind of decision? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I'm curious, have you ever come across that and where somebody had to have that conversation and maybe made that decision and, you know, what ramifications happened as a result? No, I think most organizations just try to make as much money as possible. <laughs> I've seen anecdotes of various apps and, and companies doing this, but it's usually where they'll like just do a notification like, hey, we noticed that you've been scrolling for a while. Would you like to continue? And that's that's what's called you're sort of breaking up their automatic decision making flow. And that's fine. That's probably better than nothing. That's different than, hey, we're actually you know doing this seriously. But I think if you spend so much time and effort 
to create a product or service that relies on people's attention, relies mm-hmm. on their, addi- not addiction, but relies on their uh, extreme interest, I su- suppose I'll say. You know, you've designed the whole thing around this to, to try and get people to do behavior in a certain way to then say, okay, well, we actually don't want you to do behavior in this other way. I, I don't I don't see any ethical problem with that. But I <laughs> I have not necessarily seen an issue with all these companies are stopping people from using their products. Right. Oh no, don't pay us money. I I, I don't think uh, I think we're a ways away from that <laughs> from that being too much of an issue. Yeah. And here's the reason I ask about this is because particularly so for those listening who are not, you know, not here, we're based in the US as uh, Susan and Guthrie of course and so even if you're not based in the U.S., it would be surprising to hear that you had not heard about our political climate, social political climate recently, and just a lot of that, how it has to do with actually some of these very same products like Facebook, like Twitter, and the influence they've had in you know our public and social discourse. And I have to believe that you two have probably given a lot, a great deal of thought about those things and how they influence this and, and decisions that could be made regarding that. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And as Guthrie has alluded to, I, we don't see it getting better. Mm-hmm. Right now, the companies are not making decisions. There's there's ancillary evidence that there is momentum, perhaps in that direction, maybe. So I so I am <laughs> there. You go. There's like a, a true lawyer endorsement. Spoken <laughs> like a true lawyer. Uh, so call me cautiously considering being cautiously optimistic. Maybe I don't know if it's a. Uh, so there may be there may be some some changes on that front. Just because it's mainly because changes. of negative PR. Yeah. Yes. Right. So I, well, I think not necessarily because these companies are like, oh, my goodness, we didn't realize what we had inadvertently done. I, I, so, right? OK, so there are there are four ways in which you can have companies become uh, have more ethical practices. The first is like government intervention, which in the United States, probably not going to happen, but maybe, but probably not. The second would be people really wanting the, the marketplace sort of deciding. So it's like, if you like sell our user data, we won't use our company. People have seemed pretty willing to give away anything they want as long as the product is a good product for free or cheap. So maybe that's shifting just a little bit, but probably not. The third would be the companies themselves just decide out of their benevolent goodwill to give, to not make as much money because reasons, probably not. The fourth way is that the employees in the company, they're the real marketplace. Companies have to attract the best talent. And if there is a if there's a thought among sort of their employees that they are doing shady things, especially after they spend so much time, especially internally, right? We're a good company. We're giving to charities. Look at all the great stuff we do. We're down with the social causes that our employees care about. We're making about. the world a better place. Yeah, yeah. It's, we're making the world a better place. All that kind of self-story that in a corporate culture, they're kind of telling telling themselves. I think a lot of the pressure is coming from, from the employees that work there and they have to make those sort of corporate employees happy. I think they're starting to see some pressure and some change on that front. That's really interesting. And I think we have seen some movement in the more ethical direction as a result of that. You know, as we're talking about these, I won't pick specific companies and you certainly don't need to either, but I am curious if you've seen the sort of things that you two suggest in influencing behavior and behavioral design at another company and thought to yourself, I'm not so sure of the application there. And you know, the, the very kind of thing that, that we might suggest and how you can use this in design. Oh, all the time. All the time. <laughs> 
I mean, I think that, I mean, there's a variation of that question, which is, you know, how often do our clients come to us and ask us to do things that we think are not ethical? And what do we do when that happens? That doesn't happen very often. Yeah. And I don't know why that is, actually. I mean, it might just be luck of the draw of who are the people who self-select and call us up and say, can you help us with our design of the blah, blah, blah product? I specifically remember two instances where we were asked to do something that where we felt it had it was crossing the line and we weren't going to do that. One of which was, you know, luckily it was very easy to talk about because what they were asking us to do was actually illegal. So that, <laughs> you know, that, you know, I've done work with the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, and that's a U.S. part of the government that monitors companies for illegal practices for of various kinds. And I've been an expert witness for them on, you know, when they're they're bringing a company to court because of actually user experience interface design issues that wow. are causing people to give away, you know, their entire life savings and not realize that they just signed that away. So, um, and I love doing that work. That's like some of the best work we do. But, you know, because of doing that work, I am very familiar with the things that are legal and the things that are illegal and the things that are gray area. You know, there are just some things that you cannot do at your website or with your product. Uh, it's illegal. So there, I, we did have a case once where someone had shown us this prototype and said, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, actually, do you realize that this is illegal? And they, they looked at each other kind of, I, I was in person with them at the time. They looked at each other kind of surprised and dismayed. I think they didn't know it was illegal sure. um, besides being unethical. But we've had one other case where someone asked us to do something that wasn't illegal, but we thought was crossing a line. And so, you know, we just addressed that. Tried to encourage them not, not to, to do, do that. that. And we certainly weren't going to help them sure. figure out the best way to do that. But, you know, it's their company. But I think in general, you know, not from our clients, you know, we, we see things all the time. I mean, I remember, Guthrie, we were at a conference a couple of years ago. This is that, you know, you mentioned about how people are, employees are getting you know, more awake to this and, and speaking out more. This was before that, because I remember there's a company that I won't call them out by name, but there was one of the people was making a presentation at this conference and she was just going on and on and on about how goal of the company and the intention of the company was to make the world a better place. And I remember you and I kind of looked at each other and and oh, I, God, said, I said, I uh, said, that's not the goal. The goal of that company, very you, well-known company, is to make a heck of a lot of money. Would you like, like to say the city that they're based in? No, they're in California. How's that? You know, a very well-known company. But it was like, does she really believe this? Does anybody else in the audience believe this? Because really that, you know, that's not the goal of the company. That's not why they're doing what they're doing. You know, I do think that that's changing. I think some of the people would have a harder time standing up at a conference and saying that now. I'll give one quick example, and I will I will use them by name. I don't like the, the State Farm ads. Okay. Uh, State Farm TV advertisements. I don't know if it's State Farm or their marketing Advertising team, agency advertising. or something. They are not the only ones. They kind of did it first, and now it's being definitely been, I mean, it's not, I don't, don't want to say copied, but it's rampant. So there's a lot of ads where there's like the fake Chris Paul. I don't know if you're familiar with these ads. I was watching a lot of basketball, so I got a lot of these Chris Paul ads. 
it's the same ones they had with James Harden, Chris Paul. It, it's, it's, it's all the same ad. There is something very scary that happens and they purposely use very scary noises. There's usually something that breaks, shatters, flies towards the screen. Someone yells. They, they often use someone looking at the screen very creepily and it's all to get attention. It's just a blatant jump scare. We're just trying to grab your attention. So you look at the screen and then they couch it in a joke. Oh, it was, oh, isn't that weird, funny that he's being so weird about the whole thing? It's like, oh, he tried to, you know, shoot the basketball, but it hit the windowsill and then the glass cracked and it fell through a truck and the whole thing just was a giant disaster. Oh, whoopsie daisies. And, mm. you know, to me, it's just very obvious that they know that if, uh, there's there's pretty reliable research that what you do, you don't need, if you're going to have an ad that's effective, you just need the attention. Well, and, and it, it, it's actually, it's even, yeah, it's more than the attention because when it's scary like that and with the loud noise and something shattering, invokes what's called an arousal response, which means your heart rate increases, your respiration increases. And then what we know is whatever comes right after that will be remembered longer mm-hmm. because it's tied to a a fear arousal emotional response and that's why they're doing it so that you will remember the name state farm now interestingly you know is that a positive association <laughs> you know i got scared and it was state farm that doesn't matter the research shows it doesn't matter they you will remember it and so you shop for insurance in three months when state farm comes up you know, you'll be more likely to automatically at or least who, check them who out. Who should I check out for insurance? And it's going to come up as State Farm just as a memory trigger. I don't know. Is that a good thing or a bad yeah, thing? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that. Though one thing I will say is that I do wonder if there is a, it's not an absolute measurement, but a relative measurement. So if everyone is doing ads like that, do we get, does it take a do couple we years, but then eventually do, are we, do we adapt to it? And then it's not as effective because- it's the same as everything else way maybe we have to, with like attractive people in ads mm-hmm. where it's still effective. But imagine if everyone was just using like regular scrubs and then like one ad company was using like gorgeous people all the time. That might be really effective, but because everyone in all the ads is, maybe is very it pretty. Effective anymore. So, I, so I'm not sure if the effectiveness will decrease as everyone's doing it, but that's one in particular that annoys me greatly. That makes total sense. I think with marketing tactics, advertising tactics in general, we see that, right? Like where something, somebody stumbles across something that works and then everybody does it. And then I think a combination of two things happens. One, it becomes saturated, so it's no longer novel. And two, as you've suggested, we kind of adapt to that. I think the interesting thing is not that we have the time to get into, but maybe a thought for everybody listening to is, is that still ethical because it then becomes normalized is an interesting question to, yeah. to consider. But, you know, one of the things that I want to ask with that, so that's a good example and questionably ethical is what I'm gathering from you, right? Maybe your opinion on that. I'm curious, is there a way to use something like that in an ethical way, right? So if that was, if, if that's the edge of the cliff, right, just as a metaphor, how do we take a few steps back and use something like that for more ethical or more appropriate behavioral design? Well, I mean, if you're making a horror movie, it's very ethical <laughs> That's like the perfect place for it. (laughs) You know, video games, that kind of stuff. Sure. There are many places where I think the ethical lines are really blurry. Yeah. And this is one of them. Yeah. You know? So, like, you know, when you're doing behavioral design, a a big part of it might be grabbing attention, right? I mean, we said 
a lot of the times we're doing behavioral design in, in order to encourage people to take action or to take a specific action. Well, if you want to encourage them to take action, you first have to get their attention. This, that is one of the attention getting techniques. Is that ethical? Is that not ethical? I think it's a, I think it's a blurry line. Like yeah. to get someone's heart racing a little bit more than usual. Is that a bad thing? Is that okay? I don't know that I have a clear answer and that's, to that. And don't forget that that's the cost that you're paying to watch a basketball game on TV for free, right? So there is a bit of a transaction. You know, you you don't have to watch ads, but if you want to watch this content, then you have to watch ads. And what those ads are or aren't, I mean, there aren't a whole lot of rules. One thing I will say when when we do talk about this is that the time frame for ethics and for changes in behavior, as an economist, you see it that's uh, maybe broader, they're really long. You know, you got to look at 10, 20, 30 year timeframes to really see changes in what societies find ethical or, or sort of dislike. There are a lot of examples in the past where things that would never be shown on screen because that was just very, that was not ethical at all. And it's not like within two years, suddenly everything changed and every show had like an interracial relationship and it wasn't a big deal. I mean, that took, it takes a very, very long, long time. Mm -hmm. And so it's possible that the behaviors of especially tech companies, but a lot of companies in maybe doing practices that people dislike, but are not outraged because, you know, it's not like the like biggest Like you said, this deal. was annoying to it, you. It's annoying. It's sort of on the fringe, like... You know, they keep sending me notifications on my phone, trying to keep, keep me to do stuff. We keep looking for these fast changes in two or three years. And what's the trend? And what's this trend? And I, you know, I encourage people to think on the 20, 30 year timescale. So 30 years from now, are people going to sort of accept these practices? It takes a really long time for things to change and organizations and institutions, especially companies, you know, for new bosses who have different mindsets to come in. These things can take a long time time. And that's not something that we're very good at in technology, right? <laughs> we work so quickly and we're, we're so focused on yeah, how done. we can do things faster and more efficiently that I think it's it's probably very difficult for people to adopt that frame of mind. Uh, and especially if you want, if you, if you are on the side where, hey, I really want things to be more ethical. Let's go, 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 go. Being like, well, maybe you need to wait 30 years is not an answer. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that you want to hear. Sure. Sure. Okay. So I want to ask one question that's kind of been in the back of my mind, even since we started this. I'm just curious, what should pe what do people need to know about psychology, behavioral economics, you know, in, in the 60-second version? What do designers need to know about that? The most important things that people need to know are about some of the latest research on decision-making, like the role that confidence plays in decision-making, the role that emotions and feelings play in decision-making. I think that new newest research is is really important. I think the what we now know about, I mean, we've known for a long time that people are very social animals, but the implication of that to design that people just have the psychological, biological need to be connected to other people and the role that plays. And then the third thing I would say is some of the latest research on vision, some of the things we know about what grabs visual attention, things about, you know, the special part of the brain that recognizes faces, special part of the brain that's very attuned to simple changes, like something being a different color and how that all works and how that plays into grabbing attention. I think those are 
those three things, the vision, decisions, and social are really important. And Guthrie, you usually, you know, we give these keynote talks on like the top five things you need to know. Do you want to add in one or two of the more behavioral economic ones? I'll just add in one broad point that when humans are making, are calculating things, you know, if they're like trying to weigh which decision to make, a lot of people think that they are calculating the way a pro, like a computer program would calculate, or that's how they think of it. And I just want to say humans calculate by feel. It's a very emotional, emotional process. And that gives all sorts of weird outcomes. He, that, go, he That one sentence, I mean, you're working on a new yes. course and that's a, that's an entire course. Yeah, Isn't it? two. Really. Yeah, 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 two courses. Part, so, part one and part two. So he said that in one sentence, but yeah. there's a lot of examples he gets mm-hmm. into on that. Right. Awesome. Okay. So if I were to summarize a little bit of that, part of my job in doing this <laughs> and hosting you two is to say, you know, things you ought to know about are some of the, again, as you mentioned, some of the most recent research on how people make decisions, how we get their attention the role confidence plays in that. It's important to be aware of and tying this back to our conversation prior, applying that ethically. uh, And that's something you kind of need to figure out on your own with context. And then remember that they are not doing these things when you are influencing their behavior. They're not doing these things in a cold, calculated way. (laughs) They're very, they're very emotionally driven. It's very, it's very touchy feely and not the way that we might imagine it's happening. Yep. That that was a fair summary. That was good, Zach. All right. Well, I've done my job pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) I realized that we were coming up at the end of our time and I want to be respectful of that for you too. So I guess one of the things I like to ask at the end of each episode is, you know, if somebody, if somebody was listening, got hit on the head, forgot everything we talked about (laughs) and said, well, can you just, can you just tell me what that episode is about? What what do you think that people should take away from our conversation? We talked a lot about ethics. Here's what I would say people should take away is that the work in the field of behavioral science, so psychology plus behavioral economics, there's just so much great stuff in this body of knowledge. And you have to apply it really carefully, but it can also be really interesting and fascinating and useful and relevant to anyone who's designing a product, designing a service, designing a user experience. Go find out about it. Go learn about it and think carefully and deeply about what you want to use and what you might not want to use. That's what I would say. What would you say? Do you agree? Okay. All right. Perfect. This has been a very fascinating chat for me and uh, pretty philosophical, which I I appreciate. And I think (laughs) the people who listen to this do too, because it's not surface level. Here's the top five things you need to do to make a better landing page or whatever. (laughs) So that's been really great. I'm curious, is there anything that you want to share with folks that we didn't talk about today? Yeah. And you want me to do the, the spiel? Yeah. I'm not sure what the spiel is, but go okay. ahead. I got I got three spiels. All right. They're all the same spiel. So if you have any questions, especially, especially if you want to like hire us and give us a boatloads of money, <laughs> you can email info at theteamw.com. We have a bunch of online video courses that we've done, many of which are free. So you can go to courses.theteamw.com and just sign up for the free ones about UX and science of Brain and behavioral science. science. Yeah. yeah. And lastly, I've been the last couple of months in sort of COVID pandemic fun times. I've been working on recording my first certificate, which is going to be behavioral economic certificate. Hmm. Um, so that's going to be hours and hours of videos and it'll be fun and yeah, awesome and all that great stuff. So that's obviously not out yet, but it'll probably be out in you know, a couple of months. Yeah, I would add one more thing, you which is we've both written 
books. Well, Guthrie, he always says, I've written one book. You've written many yeah. books. So Between I, the two of us, we've written, written many, many books. books. <laughs> but anyway, we have books. If people like reading and they want to read more about these topics, yeah. they can they can yeah. check out some of our books. Guthrie's book on behavioral economics is called I Love You Now Read This Book. It's quite a great book all about behavioral economics. And then probably my book that's the most relevant to what we're talking about here is a hundred things every designer needs to know about people. And there's a second edition of that I would point people to. So awesome. Well, I'm pretty sure I probably read the first edition. So I have not been appraised of the second edition. So that's awesome. We can add, make sure we have links to all that stuff in the show notes. Sure. As you're listening to this, go ahead to our site where we have it on our blog and we'll have links to all those things that you can check out. But I just want to say thanks again to you both for taking the time to come on, chat with us, and even slightly wax poetic, as Guthrie said, about some of this <laughs> stuff, which I, think, uh, which I think was fun for me. And so appreciate having you on. Yeah. Thanks so much for having this us. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. All right. Cool. Well, thanks again. I hope everybody enjoyed it and we will see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the research and insights tool that helps you analyze, search, and share all your research in one place. So you can go from data to insights to action faster and easier. Check out Aurelius for yourself with a 30-day trial by going to AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you would give us a review on iTunes to let others know what you think. You can catch all new episodes of the Aurelius podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts like iTunes, Spotify, and more. Stay up to date when new episodes come out by signing up for email updates on our website.